was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome theater historian Robert Viagas, author of the new book, Good Morning Olive, Haunted Theaters of Broadway and Beyond, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else you buy books. You can hear my full interview with Robert about his amazing career from back in June 2021, but I'm thrilled that he's joining us again today for a late Halloween celebration to talk about theater's many ghosts. So now, without further ado, please welcome Robert Viagas. Right. Did you have a chance to see the book? I did. I did. I love the book. Good. I, Very good. Yeah. It's did. so much fun. I <laughs> I had been putting it together all these years, collecting these stories. You know, I used to do uh, lectures uh, at libraries and colleges and things, and people would say, do you have a book? I'd love to buy a book if you had a book. Uh, so I finally put one together. Oh, yeah. Well, that's actually sort of ties into my first question, which is how did the inspiration finally come to to put it all down on paper? Well, I, you know, for years, uh, I shared an office with a guy who worked a playbook called Louis Botto. Louis Bonner was a great old guy. He used to do the at this theater column in the playbills. Um, and after he retired, I took over that column. But we used to share a desk and people would call him. I'd be sitting there and he'd get a call from somebody and you could tell he like he'd put his finger up kind of like this. Uh, sometimes he'd put them on speaker. It was people who worked on Broadway. Lewis had a reputation as a guy who collected ghost stories, and they would call Lewis. Sometimes people would call him, and they'd be in a panic. I remember uh, sitting across from him when they were doing the repairs to the uh, New Amsterdam Theater when uh, Disney was uh, renovating it, and he got a call from a guy who said, "You know, I've been working on the. I've been working in the theater. I've been working up in the mezzanine, and." Um, uh, I turned around and there was a woman there. She was dressed in a white gown. She had a little sash and she had a little beaded hat and she was carrying a blue bottle and she spoke to me. And I remember this was a a worker. And he said, I was upset because dangerous. He said, so we went to the foreman to complain. Um, He said, you know, if you're going to let people wander around in the theater, you should at least give them a hard hat. And the, the, uh, the foreman said, "Uh, did she have a white, gown on a filmy white gown he said yes did she have a the sash yes he said that's olive thomas she's the ghost that haunts the the new amsterdam one of actually several ghosts that haunt the new amsterdam and um and he said uh i i didn't know who to talk to this about and they told me that you were the guy to talk to and lewis said you know yes the, the this is a the ghost of a ziegfeld girl uh who um committed suicide in paris uh, in in 1920, and that she has been haunting. She haunted that theater for years. We didn't hear from her for a long time, but now that I guess now that Disney is rehabilitating the theater, obviously she's returned. I got uh, we I listened to Lewis get a call from a, a guy who was working as a watchman at the theater, and he said, 
I could I could hear this on the phone. He was saying, um, I was working last night and suddenly this woman approached me and I thought there was nobody left in the theater. This was in the middle of the night. This woman approached me and she came over to me and she said, how are you doing, fella? Exactly the same way that the other guy had described her voice. He said, and she turned and she walked through the wall and, and I quit on the spot. And Lewis said, once again, you have you have met Olive Thomas, the the ghost who haunts the New Amsterdam. So I became interested in this. And after Lewis retired, a lot of those calls got forwarded to me. So I started getting all these great stories from all the different theaters. Oh, by the way, Olive, it's not like this is this happened long ago and far away. Olive has been appearing at the theater regularly. I, I people who saw her on um uh on uh Mary Poppins on uh, Lion King, when Lion King was at the theater, um, when um, now Aladdin, I'm getting reports from Aladdin. Uh, also, you have to say, uh, when when you come to the theater in the morning, now this comes from a good source, Dana Amendola, who is the house manager of the theater. See, in my book, I like to name the names of, of people right. who gave me their stories. He said that, um, uh, that, that if people don't say good morning, if people don't say good morning, Olive, when they come to work in the morning, bad things happen. Not terrible. They're not not murder. They, 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 they'll come into their dressing room and and all the uh, uh, makeup and things will have been thrown on the floor. They'll be tripped when they're going down the stairs. The way to keep this from happening is to say good morning, Olive, when you come to work. And she likes being respected. I have to say, I have so many Olive stories. I could take up the whole interview here telling Olive stories. Um, but what they've done is to help the people who work there say good morning to Olive, uh, Mr. Amendola has actually posted pictures of her at every entrance to the theater, including the main entrance. The audience comes in. And when people come in, I have a picture in the book of, of the, um, the stage door. When people come in, they can say good morning to Olive, get it out of the way and go about their business. So I've been collecting these the stories and... Uh, and it's just it's just so fascinating. Now I have to tell you, and you know, um, uh, to be honest, I have never personally had a ghost appearance, a ghostly experience. I would love to have a ghostly experience. I asked him if I could stay over at the at the New Amsterdam so that I could experience Olive, and he said yes at first. But then Disney said, "Well, you can stay till midnight, but you can't stay over." And I stayed there, and I have to tell you, nothing happened. Nothing at all happened. And Dana said. She doesn't come on, she doesn't appear on order. She doesn't uh, uh, on demand, as as it were. Um, she appears to who she wants, to whom she wants to appear, when she wants to appear. So I, I have to say, I have collected stories from all these people, people that I trust, people who are willing to give their names and associate their names with, with the... Uh, uh, the ghostly experiences, but I personally have not, and I would like to, and I'm hoping maybe by publishing this book, I can get one of the ghosts to, to appear to me. But as you know, you've read the book. I have not only Broadway ghost stories, I have ghost stories from theaters all over the world, and I, I just love them. I just love them. And I have collected so many more stories than are in this book, but a lot of times the people, they just see something. I like a story that kind of has a beginning, a middle, and an end, so that's what I put in the book. Right. And are many of the stories in the book double sort of verified that more than one person has seen this right. ghost? And... Well, what I did was, uh, see, uh, my background is as a reporter. I, I started the um, news service, Playbill.com, 
and tried to try to run it like a newspaper or actually my model was the associated press i wanted to treat theater news like real news which is what it is i don't understand why the new york newspapers don't put theater on the front page like the los angeles times puts movie news on the front page theater news is is real news it's important news but so i approached the whole ghost thing like a reporter what i did was for 10 years i was the editor of this book this is the playbill broadway yearbook and what i did was it contains the contents of every playbill uh, I also included photos of everybody who worked on the show, not just the actors, but all the creative people and also the stagehands and the ushers, everybody who worked on the show. And what I did to make the book a little more interesting, I asked, I, I hired on every show, somebody called the correspondent. It could be an actor, it could be a backstage worker. And I gave them a list of questions, things like, you know, where did you have your opening night party? And what are your favorite... Uh, um, um, backstage rituals that you do and you know what is uh, what is a memorable ad lib that somebody did in the show I asked them a bunch of questions and one of the questions I asked them was have you seen a ghost any kind of a ghostly experience I was editor of this book for 10 years so I made a spreadsheet every show at every theater was there a ghost or wasn't there a ghost I found something really really interesting the theaters that didn't have ghosts never had ghosts. Show after show, correspondent after correspondent would say, "Sorry, I, I would, you know, I would love to be able to say we saw a ghost, but we didn't." But the theaters that did have ghosts, like the New Amsterdam, pretty much always had a ghost, and they always described the ghost the same way. Charles, as a skeptic, I have to say it's almost <laughs> as if there were ghosts at some of the theaters and weren't ghosts at some of the other theaters. Uh, so, I mean, I actually had, uh, as I said, not many, not many ghost hunters have spreadsheets uh, with reports from people. And I have to tell you, I hate these ghost hunter shows where they come on with their little gadgets and they, they, you know, they say, oh, we got a vibration in the other room. I kind of hate that. I, at n none of these shows, do they have a full figure ghost come walk out and go, boo, I'm a ghost. It never <laughs> But it does happen at these Broadway shows. It happens backstage and sometimes in the house. Um, they, they're actually, people believe that they've seen ghosts. They can describe what the ghost is. And the ghost seems pretty consistent from show to show. So, I, you know, I don't know why I don't just tell scary stories. I just want to show, I take this really seriously. And I have really approached this in a scientific way. And that's where all these go. But the stories themselves, as the ones that I mentioned of Olive, are just wonderful. By the way, there's another ghost at the New Amsterdam, not associated with Olive. It's called, the, and it has my favorite ghost name. It's the Black Goon. The Black Goon appears as a disembodied shadow that will walk, the shadow will pass down the hall next to you or up and down stairs next to you. And it doesn't harm anybody. But if you saw a disembodied shadow that was not created by a moving light or anything like that, move along the floor. I have to say, I think I think either of us would be a little bit <laughs> And of all of the many ghost stories in this book, is there one that frightens you the most? Yeah, there is one. And it does not, there's, there is a theater in Chicago. It used to be called the Iroquois Theater. It was then the, um, uh, the Oriental for many years. And now it is the Nederlander Theater. There was a terrible fire there in 1903. Um, it was one of these things, you know, there are very few 
theaters that are left from the 19th century. Why? They, they burned down. They were made out of wood. They were lit by gaslight, fl open flame. A lot of them burned down. When they opened the Iroquois, they announced that it would, um, that the theater could not burn. They had a big asbestos curtain. This is before they knew what a, what a horrible cancer uh, uh, th cause is, it was uh, asbestos. Um, they claimed that they had all these things to prevent their uh, fire occurring at the theater. The theater lasted just a little over a month. There was a horrible fire at the theater. Uh, it was between Christmas and New Year's. It was packed with women and children who were there for a family matinee. Uh, a family show. And uh, it starred Eddie Foy from the um, Seven Little Foys. As a matter of fact, this fire, when they made a movie about Eddie Foy, they included uh, a scene from this fire. Uh, Bob Hope played Eddie Foy in the movie. Um, the, the doors were, the doors were locked. The show was so popular. It was sold out. They had standing room only, people sitting in the aisles. And because they were worried that people were going to sneak in, they locked the doors. Because they were worried people were going to sneak down from the cheap seats, they they put barriers in the way for people to come down. Um, the theater was so new, they they trumpeted the fact that they had um, fire escapes, but uh, the, the flat part of the fire escape that you climb out on was there, but they hadn't installed the little ladders. <laughs> So when this fire broke out in the theater, they tried to lower the asbestos curtain, but it got caught on a piece of scenery, so they couldn't lower it. Um, people tried to get out of the doors, but they didn't have those riot bars that we now have on the doors. And the, they couldn't get the, the doors opened in instead of opening out. Uh -huh. So once the first few people got out, the crowds pushing against the door prevented them from opening the doors. People got went out on the fire escapes in the balcony and they... They couldn't get, they, there was no way for them to get down. So they started jumping. Oh. In the end, more than 600 people died in this fire. And they say, people who work at the theater say that if you go out in the alley, which they call Death Alley, <laughs> not very original, but descriptive. <laughs> um, they say, if you go out there at night, you can hear screaming. Like, like if you hold a, a, a shell up to your ear, you can hear screaming. Um Anna Gasteyer played um, Elphaba there in Wicked. And she said when she was uh, doing the uh, act one finale, Defying Gravity, she was up in the air. She said she could see the the, uh, the wings were filled with women and children looking up at her in uh, period costumes. Uh, not when they were costumes, it was their clothes. And when she went down and asked the uh, stage manager, who, who are all these people? The stage manager said, uh, there's nobody here. It was ghosts. It was, it was the ghost. And, and, and she said she had it was a chilling experience for her at the at that theater. And I have to say, when I think about it, especially the women and children part, not that men aren't important, but there's something especially creepy about children's ghosts. There's a ch child ghost at there's actually two child children ghosts at the um, at the uh, uh, palace in New York. Um, one of them is uh, a little boy who's playing with trucks and the people who work there late at night say you can sometimes hear the rumbling of these little toy trucks. And when they go up to, to, to see what's making the noise, they, there's a little boy and he gradually disappears. Also, there is a little girl who haunts the mezzanine. People on stage say that um, sometimes when they're rehearsing, they'll look up into the mezzanine and they'll see a little face 
come from behind the seat like this and, and look around like that and go back down under the seat. And I'll tell you, Charles, if I saw that, I would just run out of that theater. Uh, the palace, uh, the, the palace is said to have more than 100 ghosts. Uh, I think that's uh, PR. Uh, I've only been able to track down about 12 ghosts, stories about like 12 ghosts. Uh, I had a story for Andrea McArdle. Uh, the original Annie said that she saw a ghost musician in the in the pit. Um, uh, supposedly, the theater is haunted by um, Houdini, the uh, magician. Although, if, if, you, if you saw in the book, I have stories of Houdini haunting a couple of theaters around the country. So when I first got these stories, uh, I thought to myself, uh, somebody's lying to me, obviously, <laughs> or somebody's just making it up. But then it occurred to me. It's Houdini. If anybody could haunt five theaters at the same time, it's Houdini. Um, so, so I have to say that that some of those stories. That there's a story about a uh, an acrobat who fell uh, while performing at the back in the vaudeville days at the palace, um, and, and they said that uh, that he fell and and died. And I did a little research, and I because I thought if somebody fell and died during a performance at the palace it would be in the newspapers and you know what it was it was in the newspapers uh the legend is that um people go coming into the palace after hours can see a, a man walking in in uh, thin air and then falling and screaming on the way uh -huh. down um but i looked it up and i found the name of the person louis Bossolina, and according to what i found was he was an acrobat he did fall uh, he was horribly injured, but he did not die. In point of fact, this happened in 1937. As a matter of fact, he retired and he, he died in, in his bed in Reading, Pennsylvania um, in, in 1962. But you know something? Sort of the same thing with, with Houdini. If Olive Thomas could die in Paris and come and haunt the New Amsterdam, Louis Bossolina could die in Reading, Pennsylvania and come back and haunt the palace. So I, I don't know, maybe he took the Reading Railroad. I don't know what he did, but um, uh, a, a, a people keep, I keep getting stories from people working at the palace telling me that they've seen this guy. And that is, that's, that's creepy. That's, that's a scary story. Oh, yeah. And speaking of people ending up where you might not predict that they would, tell us about how Caruso ended up at the Brady Theater in Oklahoma or? Well, I know uh, uh, Caruso was a wonderful uh, opera singer. And um, he always had to protect his voice, like all singers, not just opera singers have to correct their, uh, have to protect their voice. Uh, all the singers do. And uh, they, Caruso, and he was, you know, such a celebrity. When he came out there, um, he, uh, they wanted to take him out and they wanted to show him the, the amazing oil fields of Oklahoma. And he went out and uh, apparently he caught a, he caught a cold and it, it hurt his voice and he died. And, of all the places that the great Caruso, with all the great opera houses around the world that he would wind up in, apparently he has wound up in this little theater in Oklahoma, and I'm sure he's very unhappy about it. But you never know. Oklahoma is a lovely state. I don't want to knock o Oklahoma, but uh, I'm not sure that, uh, and apparently they appreciated opera singers enough to book him. So not to, not to uh, uh, cast shade at Oklahoma, but uh, I bet... Um, I bet he would have preferred to be at the Metropolitan Opera or someplace like that. There are, by the way, there are ghosts at a bank on 38th Street 
because that's where the old Metropolitan Opera House used to be. And they tore it down. They moved up to Lincoln Center. But the people who work at the bank where I used to bank um, because uh, Playbill had its offices right around the corner, the tellers at the bank told me that they would sometimes hear opera music playing uh, when they were when they were uh, uh, doing their paper paperwork at the end of the day that they could hear opera music playing and nobody was playing it and they assumed that this is the ghost of the opera singers uh still haunting that theater by the way the palace i am very curious just to get back to the palace for a second i am very curious about what's going to happen now that they're doing that crazy thing oh. where they're, they're jacking the palace up to put uh retail space underneath it i'm amazed that they're able to even do that <laughs> Uh, but I'm wondering, are the ghosts going to be jacked up three floors also, or are the ghosts now going to haunt the stores? Uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm eager to see how that works out. And one of the, uh, one of the things in the book that struck me as the strangest or creepiest was this group of people called the Teaspoon Brigade. And tell us about what these people. Oh, are. I'm not supposed to talk about the Teaspoon Brigade. Oh. I, I will, I will put it out there, but uh, I have two very big caveats. The Teaspoon Brigade is a sub Rosa organization. Um, a few Broadway people belong to it. The idea is that they want to haunt theaters. And so the, they have gotten together and they have um, they have agreed with one, to help one another that when one of them dies, they will be cremated and they will spread a teaspoon of their ashes in the theater that they want to haunt. <laughs> Caveat number one, this is against the law. This is illegal to do this. It's it's considered um, mistreatment of a corpse, um, a human remains. Uh, you are not allowed to do that. And certainly you could not do that without permission from uh, the theater owners. I'm sure the theater owners would not want that to ha happen at their theater. So I very, and I have said this to people that I know who are in the organization or I've spoken to who are in the organization. Uh, and it's not a, it's you know it's not a formal organization they don't like collect dues and things it's right. just people who've gotten together and maybe had too much to drink and agreed that they would do this for each other the other ca big caveat i will point out is i have no record of this ever working uh, i don't know of anybody who had their teaspoon of ashes spread in one of our beautiful theaters um that they that it ever succeeded that they eventually haunted uh, the theater. I mean, I think uh, once once you have been cremated, I don't know if your soul resides in those ashes anymore. So those are my two caveats. Uh, but yes, it's 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 a very creepy organization. But it is, once I will hasten to add, it is against the law, and I don't think it works. But people believe people really live people really want to. Some people really want to haunt theaters, and I here's the reason why that I believe. People work all their lives, Charles, to get on Broadway. It's that sometimes it's not only the top item on the bucket list, it's the only item on their bucket list. And once they get to work on Broadway, they don't want to leave ever. They want, I mean, it's like, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to stay on Broadway? And apparently some of them have said, I'd rather stay on Broadway. So uh, th that's why, that is I, the the thing that I think is behind this because there's no there's no formula for haunting a Broadway theater. I mean, as I said, it's not just people who've died in theaters. It's sometimes it is, but sometimes it's people who've died far from theaters, and they've just had this desire 
perhaps it's you know why do ghosts haunt places sometimes it's like is it the place where something really terrible happened to them where their lives were abruptly ended or is it the place where they had their most wonderful experience and they never want to leave I, it's you know and then we get down to the question of you know exactly what are ghosts are they your spirit are they are they some part of you that has made an, an impression on the space-time continuum and you just and it's just an image that because if you notice the ghosts always appear and they do the same things they're kind of like vaudeville performers they always wear the same costume they always do the same shtick they always look the same uh, is it just is it like a, a is it like a a picture that is just imprinted on reality and it just keeps playing over and over again or or are people just crazy and it's, that might be it too but you know something Charles there's a must be a lot of people who are crazy in exactly the same way and apparently who see the same things is, is it just mass hysteria uh, it's it's something that is pervasive if you notice my book has ghosts from all around the world. Uh, many different kinds of theaters, many different cultures, many different cultures that believe different things happen to you after, after you're dead. And yet they all kind of have these same experiences. Something is there. And again, they never appear to me. I remember uh, 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 Ray Venezia, was a guy who uh, used to work uh, at the palace and he did the concession there. He said that... Uh, he said the Judy Garland halls haunts the palace. There's a door at the back of the house. And if you go and you put your ear up against that door, you can hear her singing. So I said, Ray, I want to come to the theater and put my ear against that door. And so he had me come to the palace. And I went there and it was after hours. So it was maybe 1130 or so. I put my ear up against that door. And I heard nothing, nothing. I heard nothing. The ghost will not appear to me. So I don't know. Am I not crazy enough? I did just write a whole book on ghosts. So clearly <laughs> that my clearly my sanity must be questioned to a certain degree. <laughs> but I have to say, I have never had uh, this experience. I did have one very minor experience. Uh, there was a uh, um, carpenter at the New Amsterdam. And he said that he would see Olive just to get back to olive i have so many uh if you notice i have a whole chapter just on my olive stories oh. um he said that olive uh his experience was that she would appear in what used to be the trap not for the theater downstairs the trap for what used to be the new amsterdam roof in the old days before they had air conditioning they would sometimes in the summer they do shows on the roof of the theater where a little bit of fresh air and there was a, a beautiful theatrical space that was built on the top of the new am uh, it was called the new amsterdam roof and zigfeld back in the days of the follies he used to do a show on the new amsterdam roof called uh the zigfeld midnight frolic which was a little more of an adult show uh, the humor was a little more adult the costumes were a little more abbreviated which is saying a lot by the way um, and that's where olive actually performed she performed on the roof uh, at the, at the uh the, the Ziegfeld New Amsterdam roof. Um, and he's, uh, the, as you know, the stage uh, underneath the section underneath the stage is known as the trap. That's why the little door is called the trap door. It's a door down to the trap. Anyway, he said that Olive would appear in the, what used to be the trap, which is now storage space. By the way, the old roof theater has been closed off and it's now Disney offices. Wow. 
Tom Schumacher sits exactly where Olive used to dance. Anyway, so uh, he said, well, sometimes she appears in the in the uh, in the trap. So I said, uh, I want to come and visit that trap and see her. So I went and the carpenter very nicely took me and we were in the trap, which is, as I said, is now storage space. It was dark. There were hunks of scenery and and wood and stuff. And there was a big metal door, a disembodied door. It didn't go any place. It was a prop, but it was steel. Must have weighed must have weighed eight hundred a thousand pounds, leaning against the wall. So I went in and uh, and he said, you know, you can you can call her if you want, but she only comes when she wants to. So I said. Olive Thomas, are you there, Olive Thomas? Nothing. And uh, and and he said, keep, keep trying. And then I remembered something. Do you remember Doris Eaton Travis? Yes. She was over, she was she billed herself as the last Siegfeld girl. And she used to appear every year at Easter Bonnet. And she would dance. And um, I remember interviewing her and calling her Doris. And she didn't like that. She wanted to be called Mrs. Travis. So Olive's married name um, was um, Pickford. She'd married Jack Pickford, brother of Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart. And uh, so in, instead of calling Olive, I said, Mrs. Pickford, are you there? And this huge disembodied door went boom. Now, of course, when something like that happens, you don't think you immediately think ghost. You think funny coincidence. Uh, funny, I called her and this thing made a noise. What a funny coincidence. Um, but the carpenter said, try it again. So I said, um, Mrs. Pickford? And the thing went boom again. That is an extremely lame ghost story, but Charles, I have to tell you, that is the closest I've come to finding to seeing a ghost. That is the closest I've come. I tried calling her again; nothing happened. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm. I try in this book. I tried again and again to peel away. You know, people. People like to embellish stories. I always try to peel away their embellishment. So that's my ghost story. It's a lame ghost story. Other people have much better ghost stories, but it's my ghost story. I'm. I'm going to tell it. It's the closest I've come to seeing a, a, a ghost. And I'm going to claim that that was possibly a ghost story. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe they're scared of me. I'm big. I'm kind of scary looking. Maybe they want to appear to me. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe they don't like the fact that I'm collecting ghost stories. I don't know. I don't know how ghosts think. I only know what they do. And I put that all in my book. Right. And so, of course, many of these great stories in your book, as you were saying, come from the interviews you've done or the experiences you've had. But what were some of the sources outside of that that were the most helpful? In? Well, um, I tried to have only ghost stories from um, recent years. Uh, I, I, it's like I have some friends who live in London who gave me some ghost stories, but they were kind of secondhand ghost stories. I have to tell you, they love their ghosts. Uh, in London, New York, they're a little iffy about about the ghosts, and, and they don't necessarily want to uh, advertise the ghosts. Uh, some theaters do. I mean, the Kennedy Center has a ghost cat, Mosby, the theater cat, who haunts that theater, and they love the cat. They have they sell stuffed cats in the in the uh, merchandise uh, uh, desk there. 
Uh, they're very proud of their cat ghost, but uh, less so in Broadway. But London, they love their ghosts. And I, I did get a, a, a secondhand story from uh, a friend of mine who works in, in London, a, a, a journalist there, who says, oh, this is very timely. We have a new king in, in, uh, in London, Charles III. Um, people are wondering who is Charles II? Well, apparently Charles II is a ghost in London. He haunts the Drury Lane Theater. And um, uh, back in the uh, 1600s, he was, uh, he was king and uh, uh, he was definitely a party boy. Uh, he had mistresses, very much unlike Charles III. Uh, but he had mistresses over there and um, uh, he, his favorite mistress was Nell Gwynn, a wonderful actress who appeared at the Drury Lane. And he had a tunnel built under Drury Lane so that he could go and visit her at the theater because it was he didn't want to bring her to the palace. And uh, he didn't want he thought it was unseemly for the king to be sneaking in the stage door. So he built this tunnel so he could visit her. And apparently he is seen quite frequently by people who work at the Drury Lane Theater. He's very easy to spot. He's got like this big curly uh, periwig on and got a little mustache. And, you know, he wears uh, clothes from that period. And apparently they believe that he's hunting around the theater trying to find Nell. Good for him. <laughs> apparently Nell has has passed on to the ether and poor Charles II is still wandering around looking for her. So that is a secondhand story uh, that I got. But um, I prefer I prefer to I prefer my stories to be firsthand. Right. And so be it ghostly or not, what are some of the biggest mishaps that you've seen on stage and just from an audience perspective? Oh, um, um, let me see mishaps. Well, I mean, apart from shows that shouldn't have been on. <laughs> I was there the night there was a musical called Shogun uh, based on the novel and the miniseries Shogun. And I was there the night that the set collapsed. The actor who was playing the main character, he was standing there on the stage singing his heart out. And I could see the, the back, the, the big, um, they had a big drop, a uh, big heavy drop. Um, and the drop must have come disconnected from the, uh, uh, from the um, suspension system because it gradually started to fall towards him. It didn't fall fast, I guess, because they... It had to push all that air out of the way, but it kind of felt very slowly. And we were all wondering, this is an interesting scenic effect. And the actor is singing away and suddenly he could, I guess he shadow must have fallen over him because he was like, like this. And the set <laughs> fell right on top of him. And they, they closed the curtain and uh, we were all sitting there looking at each other. And an announcement, and this was press night. I was there on a press night. And the, the announcement came up with the thing that the rest of the performance was canceled and that we'd have to reschedule. Luckily, the actor was not seriously injured, but um, I, I did see that. Um, I, when, I, years ago, I went to see Starlight Express in London. And um, they were, you know, they're skating all over the place. And there's this, oh, there's this one section, I guess today you'd call it a half pipe. I don't know if they had a, if they had a term for it in those days. These, these are just actors dressed as choo-choo trains skating around. And the actors would skate up this half pipe and they'd become air, airborne and they'd land and then they'd keep skating. It was a great effect. But this one actor, kind of a heavy set actor, he, he was skating along and he went up and he didn't quite make it. And his 
his face hit the edge of this oh. and I saw a little white thing go flying through the air and I said is that a is that a tooth <laughs> um and they stopped the performance uh, again and I, I think he may he, he may have been injured but probably the probably the worst disaster that I've ever saw I'm not going to name the actor I saw a production of a funny thing happen on the way to the forum at a small theater in Westchester County, north of New York. And they they came in and it was the cheapest production you ever saw. They spent like $10 on the show. Um, they, but you know, it's it's really, it's just the three houses, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the house of Marcus Lycus, uh, you know, the Senex's house and the house of Veronius. So I mean, you don't really, I, I saw it done in the round by the way with Zero Mostel, but they had no set. They just had a little arch over the three exits. That was all the set they had. But anyway, at this production in Westchester, they came in by bus and um, the show started up. They played the wonderful overture and the show began. And it became very quickly apparent that the actor playing Pseudolus had not memorized the script. And he decided instead of canceling the performance that he would ad lib his way through uh -huh. a funny thing happened on the way to the forum so incredible tightly plotted lyrics by steve sonic if you can imagine a professional actor trying to ad lib his way through the lyrics to a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that is what we saw and it was it was like springtime for hitler we were all we couldn't believe it people started leaving and um, at the end of the show, a, a lot of people left at intermission. I stayed because I wanted to see how bad it was going to get, because I, I knew this would be a legendary story. He, the leading actor came out and apologized. And he said the reason that he had had so much trouble remembering the script was because there were women in wheelchairs down front and he could see up their dresses. And that is why <laughs> had so much trouble doing the show, doing a funny thing on the way the forum. You know, there are certain theatrical traditions that have passed away. Like you rarely, rarely hear people booing. I mean, really booing. I mean, diaphragmatic booing. And we just booed that guy until he left the stage. And he... He went like that, he went like that, like it was our fault. Um, that was it was it was a, a disaster far beyond any physical disaster, collapsing sets, or you know any other thing that you can possibly imagine. I would say that was the biggest disaster I ever personally witnessed. Oh wow! I wonder if there's ghosts in that theater. I haven't gotten any ghost stories out of that theater, but. Um, uh i have to tell you that haunts that memory haunts me and i would love to be able to get rid of it <laughs> oh yes and theatrical ghost stories are also very intertwined with theatrical superstitions and do you have any favorites of those or least favorites well uh, the of course there's always the great you know scottish scottish play i i i'm i you know something i'm not a superstitious person myself generally but I have seen enough productions of the Scottish play that have gone horribly wrong. And I have seen people say the title of the Scottish play in a theater. I've seen it happen enough 
that. I will not say the, the title of the play in a theatrical setting, but it's a wonderful play and actors like it and they keep doing it. We keep getting we keep getting production after production of that play, but I have seen many bad things happen. Uh, some of the things make sense, like uh, no whistling in the theater. Um, I can understand that because, uh, don't forget, there was a lot of crossover between uh, sailing and the theater back in the days when there was sailing ships. Why? A lot of the guys that worked on these ships, they were used to um, operating canvas. We're used to making the sails go up and down, which is the same thing with uh, the drops, the old uh, canvas drops. Um, theaters are uh, like boats. Theaters are not usually flat surfaces. I mean, there's a flat stage behind you. But other than that, the theater, like the edge of the, the mezzanine, I mean, a lot of what you see in a theater is curved space. And so a lot of the people who worked on theaters, they would hire guys from who worked on the ships because they knew how to do that sort of thing. And on the ships, they would uh, communicate with each other, especially if they had to communicate during a big storm when it was very noisy, by whistling. And so a lot of the old stagehands, before they had microphones and before they had electronic communications, they would communicate with each other by whistling. So if you walked backstage and you started whistling a happy tune, uh, you could get, have something fall on you because they would they would think that that was a signal. So that is a superstition. I understand that superstition. But uh, shiny apples on opening night, I don't get that. Um, uh, carrying a um, shiny penny in your pocket or in your shoe on opening night, not, I mean, there's a lot of superstitions about uh, lucky pennies, uh, but I'm not sure what the, the origin of that is. Uh, uh, you're not supposed to put your shoes on uh, on a table or on a desk. That makes sense because in the old days when there were horses in the street, uh, the bottom of your shoe is not the most sanitary place uh, in the theater. So, um, uh, so I sort of understand that uh, superstition, but... Um, uh, you know, some of them make sense to me, and some of them, some of them don't. Or the the reasons for them have been lost in 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 history. But I think it that's part of where the ghost thing comes from. It comes from superstitions. I, I once uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell once talked to me, and um, he actually wrote a preface to one of my books. He said that he just compared theaters to wine barrels, and he said that like when you keep wine in a wine barrel, a little bit of the wine soaks into the the barrel and it they sometimes they'll they'll put other things in the barrel because it picks up some of that flavor similarly he said theaters are like wine barrels that he believes a little bit of the every performance stays into the, in the theater and it enriches future performances and that seems kind of ghostly to me also maybe that's what happens the, some of the some of the the intense emotions that are expressed in the theater stick to the theater a little bit especially great performances they stick to the theater a little bit maybe that's maybe that's where the ghosts come from you talk a lot about the ghosts that haunt the theaters but of course there are also ways of putting ghosts on stage as part of the show and you okay. talk about a very interesting effect that helps with that and could you tell us a little bit about that well, back in the 19th century they would do they had all these wonderful uh, special effects that were some of them were i mean they were all low tech they didn't have they didn't have uh industrial light and magic they just came up with these incredible uh incredible uh, wonderful effects a lot of them are used in um uh 
in uh, Lion King. If you go to Lion King, they use a lot of these these effects. Uh, uh, Julie Taymor really deserved every award that she got for that show because she really dipped into this tradition. But the one I like the best is uh, it's called Pepper's Ghost. Uh, this was from the 19th century, and they accomplished this with uh, with mirrors and and changing lights, just like you, you've ever seen a, um, a scrim curtain. A scrim curtain, if you shine light on it from one side, it's a solid curtain. But if you shine light from the other side, you can see through it. And so they, you can have, um, you can have a, um, a whole set can gradually disappear by just changing the lights. Pepper's Ghost is a little bit more than that. A couple of years back, there was a musical called Ghost. And I always thought that Ghost had the most impressive special effect of any show that I ever saw, because... If you've seen the movie, most people have seen the movie. Not that many people got to see the musical. Uh, at the end, the, the the ghost, you know, he he kisses this this woman. He has this intense love for her, but he's dead, and he and he ha and he has to move on. And in the movie, he he disappears. How are they going to do that on on stage? At the end of Ghost, which had a lot of great special effects in it. The main character was standing center stage. There was nothing around him. It's, there wasn't like a, a door that he could disappear into. There wasn't a hole in, in, in the stage that he could drop into. He stood at the center of stage and he kissed her. And it was a very emotional moment. And he dematerialized from the center of the stage. And I always thought that was the best piece of special effect that I had ever seen. When I did research for this book, I realized that now the people who did the show have never admitted that this was Pepper's ghost, but it had to have been Pepper's ghost. All they did, it, it just has to do with um, mirrors that the actual actor was standing under the stage in the trap and um, in Pepper's ghost, this is, and they had a way of shining a light on the, and using a mirror and then a pane of glass on the stage. Have you ever you've ever ever sat in front of a, a window and you see what was behind you because it's reflected in the mirror? That's kind of how Pepper's Ghost works, more or less. And an actor could stand stand center stage, and they use this in in uh, productions of, of Shakespeare plays that had ghosts in them. And you, uh, from the audience's point of view, it appears that an actor standing on the stage can vanish. And I just love this stuff. They used to have shows called phantasmagorias. You may have heard that word applied to other things, but that was a literal thing. A phantasmagoria had all these special effects. And, you know, people who'd never seen special effects before, it was pretty easy to fool them or pretty easy to impress them. Let me put it that way. And so these phantasmagorias um, would use these, uh, these special uh, projectors very primitive, not like a movie projector, very primitive, just using light and mirrors to make things appear and move and disappear. And uh, people were, people would faint. I mean, that back in the days when people were innocent enough to, to faint at a special effect like that. And I have to say, as a theater guy, I just love all these old things and I wish they would use them more, but people become so jaded by special effects in movies, you know, they can see planets blow up and they're like, yeah, 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 we've seen that before. Uh, people aren't as impressed anymore with these things, but in, back in the day, these were, these were produced wonder and awe, true wonder and awe, and uh, only the theater could provide it. 
And we've talked a lot about audience and the audience response to ghosts and seeing ghosts on stage. And your next book, which is coming out in June, is actually about a history of the audience. And That's right. Thank you for mentioning it. I, I, yes, yes. It's actually on pre-sale. By the way, uh, Good Morning Olive when, uh, was published October 1st and it is on sale now. But you can pre-order my next book, which is coming out in June, called and Right This Way, A History of the Audience. You've read biographies of movie stars and writers and composers and directors and everybody else. No one has ever written a book about the most important collaborator in the theatrical experience of all. And that is the audience. Because Charles, I, I have a belief. Um, we, we talk about the stage and we talk about how all the things that happen on the stage. But you know something? Theater doesn't happen on the stage. What happens on the stage is designed to evoke theater because theater happens inside you. It happens when you suspend your disbelief and you become immersed in the story. And, you know, you may see uh, somebody bouncing across the stage and and uh, and you're like, yes, that's I believe that that's Thomas Jefferson. And I become immersed in the story enough so that the rest of the stage kind of disappears and you just become immersed in the story. That's because theater is happening inside of you. So I have written a history of things that happen in the theaters all the way back to the Greeks, all the way up to the present uh, with Zoom. And I talk about not just theater audiences, I talk about all kinds of uh, movie audiences and Netflix audiences and sports audiences, because they all have their special things. I went to the National Archive and I got, I found stories written by people who were in the audience the night Lincoln was assassinated. And they talk about how happy and relieved, but also sometimes sad he looked while he was watching the show. And they would hear him laugh. And don't forget, we see presidents on TV all the time. A lot of these people, they never saw a president before. And suddenly here's this guy and he's laughing. And the relief that people felt when they heard the guy who was leading the country during Civil War laughing five days after the surrender at Appomattox, he, this is what he decided to do, go out and have fun and see a show. And the horror that they felt when the gunshot rang out. And I have an account by this one guy who was sitting right under Lincoln's box. And he saw Booth jump onto the stage and say, Six Semper Tyrannis. And I mean, we've a lot of us have seen assassins. And so we've seen this recreated. This guy saw it happen. And uh, he, he says he jumped up onto the stage and tried to catch the guy, but he tried to catch Booth. But, you know, Booth was an actor. He knew this, the theater. He was able to get out of the theater. But he says, but I got the scoundrel's hat. <laughs> I just, uh, so you talk about the breaking the fourth wall, actors, <laughs> this guy broke the fourth wall the other direction. And jumped onto the stage where, right where Lincoln had just been assassinated. So I have that. I got a history of booing. I've got all kinds of wonderful stories oh. uh, from um, things that have happened in the audience over the years. Um, so anyway, so that's come. That's next. Uh, that after done with ghosts, now I move on to the audience. But you know, it's part of all the same thing, my friend. It's part of all just loving the experience of the theater. And being a, part, a member of the audience all those years. Um, don't forget, I've seen, I, I actually did a count. I've now seen more than 2,000 Broadway shows. And wow. if you think about it, you know, there's, 
how many shows get done every season? Somewhere between 25 and 40 shows. And that tells you how many years <laughs> I've been going to, to the theater. I've seen almost every show that has opened on Broadway since I was in my late teens. When I was the theater critic for Franklin Square Bulletin, and my column was called Theater in the Square. And I, I was in high school and I had a theater review column in my local newspaper. Uh, you know, I've always, I, I like being an audience. You know, people go to college and they train to be wonderful singers and they train to be wonderful actors. And we don't really train our audience. The audience is something that you do as a as an uh, amateur. I mean, there are professional audiences. They're, they're called our reviewers and critics. They're professional audiences. And I, just being a member of an audience is just such a wonderful experience. And it's something that was taken away from us during COVID. We lost that experience of being in a live audience at any rate, being in a virtual audience, but you lost the experience of being in a live audience. And the first show I saw after COVID, I went to see um, the first performance, the first performance of The Lion King after, after it had been closed. And even before the lights went down, everybody was so happy to be in an audience surrounded by other people who love shows and were waiting for this wonderful experience and and uh and it was just like you like you came home like you came home maury Yeston wrote a song for his version of phantom which is just called phantom not andrew lloyd weber's phantom in the novel, phantom and he has a wonderful song called home and uh it's about uh, somebody who gets a job in the theater and they feel like they're finally home. And, and I identified with that song that first night that I was back in the theater. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor. Pleasure. Wonderful. My pleasure. And uh, Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember to go out and get your copy of Good Morning, Olive. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by veteran actor Tom Sesma. Tom Sesma is currently appearing off-Broadway in A Man of No Importance at Classic Stage Company, and his prolific stage career has spanned La Cajo Fall, Chuchem, Nick and Nora, Search and Destroy, Face Value, Men of La Mancha, and The Times They Are Changing on Broadway, as well as A Sherlock Carol, Letters of Suresh, Superhero, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, As Thousands Cheer, In a Pig's Valise, Othello, Cymbeline, and more in New York. You won't want to miss that conversation, so make sure to tune back in, and thanks for listening.